Good morning. My name is Peter Lee, and I'm a member of Woodside Community Church, and that is the first way in which I am indebted to North Shore Baptist Church. We have two pastors at Woodside. Matthew received invaluable training at North Shore before taking up the pastorate at Woodside Community Church, and we just outright took Mike Moultrie from you. Uh, we, have, we have had baptism at North Shore, and we're invited every summer to your Wednesday night worship service, and you always welcome us with the utmost love and hospitality. And so on behalf of Woodside Community Church, I want to express my gratitude to the Lord for you. But that is not the only way I am personally indebted to this church. I am known around North Shore Baptist Church as Artesia's husband, or the thief, or the guy who poached Artesia away. She is such a wonderful wife and a helper for me, which is no small part, is because of the ministries, the saints, and the fellowship at North Shore for her. You gave me my pastors, and you gave me my wife, so it is only right for me to serve you once in return this morning by preaching Christ to you and building you up in the gospel. So with that said, let me pray for us and we'll dive into the text. Let's, let's pray. Lord our God, the Father of mercy, you have ordained by your sovereignty and your grace to gather your saints here this morning as the body of Christ, as a congregation of the saints, to come and behold the wondrous mystery of the gospel which you have now revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who lived, who took on flesh, uh, like one of us, who lived in righteousness, who died and vicarious intoning death, who rose again for our justification. So now we pray that Jesus Christ will go forth uh, with your word. I pray that your spirit will transform the minds and the hearts of your saints so that they may love Christ, they may treasure the gospel, they may extol the name of Jesus in this world and in the next. I pray that if there is anyone here who does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I pray that this hour, by the preaching of your word, you will save sinners. Some will pass from death to life this very hour, we pray. Amen. The gospel according to Matthew is about the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. In the New Testament, this phrase, the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, appears almost exclusively in the gospel according to Matthew, and it appears 32 times in total. And not only so, these 32 appearances of the kingdom of heaven is not concentrated in one or two places, but dispersed throughout the gospel of Matthew. Jesus began his ministry with Matthew 3.2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? right before his arrest, that's at the end of his ministry, Jesus was still describing what the kingdom of heaven looks like. Matthew 25, verse 1, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. Right? The gospel of Matthew is about the kingdom of heaven. The gospel of Matthew is about the kingdom of heaven. Now, the main character of this gospel is obviously the Lord Jesus. He was born, he began his ministry, he taught and preached the gospel everywhere for three and a half years. He was opposed, arrested, and crucified, and then he was resurrected. But the gospel of Matthew is not exactly a one-man show. There's a supporting cast, part of which are the disciples. The disciples are bad friends, and worse students. Occasionally, they have that spark of inspiration. Jesus asked them who, who they think he is. Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, right? Simon bar Jonah. But most of the time, Jesus teaches them, and they're just a bit clueless. Right? Jesus calmed the storm. The disciples asked, who is this? Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And then the disciples answered, yeah, we didn't bring any bread. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to suffer. The disciples were arguing who among them was the greatest. So the protagonist, Jesus, is the Son of God, 
and the greatest teacher of divine truth, the secondary characters, they're not terribly bright. And our text this morning is such an episode. Jesus turns to his disciples to teach them what the gospel is, how he will save his people from their sins and death, but the disciples are very slow to understand. Disciples of Jesus sometimes don't like what Jesus has to say, but the disciples must then be corrected and resolve to obey. So if you have the physical copy of the Bible with you, please turn to the gospel according to Matthew chapter 16. We'll be in verses 21 through 23. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. Let me read the text for you, and please pay close attention to every verse, because this is the word of God. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests as scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the, on the things of man." I want to draw your attention to two things from this text. First, the revelation. Verse 21, Jesus began to teach his disciples about his suffering, death, and resurrection. And that is the gospel. What can we learn about this gospel from Jesus' teaching here in this text? Secondly, point number two is the refutation. Peter didn't like the plot twist, so he tried to stop Jesus. But Jesus turned to him and rebuked him. So disciples who are in error are corrected or even rebuked so that he may be complete and ready for every good work. So two simple points for you this morning, the revelation and the refutation. So let's begin with point number one, the, the revelation. Verse 21, look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem I suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now you see the ESV title for this passage, Jesus foretells his death and resurrection. This foretelling of death and resurrection will happen twice more in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 17, 22 to 23, and Matthew 20, 17 to 19. So in other words, this is important. Jesus himself will repeat the same thing three times. I don't think anything Jesus did or said was repeated thrice in the same gospel book. So it is important. It is important because this is the gospel according to Jesus. This is the gospel in Jesus' own words. This is like a director telling everyone what his movie is really about or the author revealing what his book, book's theme really is. Right? That this is the authoritative and decisive interpretation. So in the same way, Jesus is now telling us what the gospel is, what he came to do, his interpretation of the gospel. That is authoritative and decisive. Now, what can we learn about this gospel from just this verse? Let me point out four things about the gospel from just verse 21. Four characteristics of the gospel. Number one, is a historicity of the gospel. Historicity of the gospel. Verse 21. Jesus, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus is describing or foretelling events that actually happened in real time involving real people at a real place. Jesus and the Jewish elites, religious elites in Jerusalem at around 30 AD, Jesus suffered, died, and rose again. These are actual events that occurred in human history. So the gospel is historically true. The gospel is more than history, but the gospel is not less than history. It is not a set of myth, mystical and spiritual uh, tenets like the Quran. 
even though it does involve spiritual truth. It is not false and fabricated stories like the Book of Mormon, written over a millennium after these fables supposed first occurrence. But the Bible was attested since the very beginning. The Bible is not moral principles, and not just moral principles, a worldly wisdom of men like the Eastern philosophies such as Confucianism or Taoism. Even though the Gospel does teach us how to live a wise and godly life in this world, nor is the Gospel arbitrary, baseless speculation and concoction like Hinduism and Buddhism. The Gospel is historical. In other words, if all the historical facts were preserved and transmitted clearly and accurately as it is now, all intellectually honest and spiritually humble men would affirm at least its historical truthfulness and authenticity. The gospel is history; it is history spiritualized and applied. The gospel is history seen through the lens of salvation. The gospel is history concentrated on the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel is history explained by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, recorded by the apostles and the prophets, preserved and transmitted of by generations of faithful Christians in the past. One of the founders of Westminster Theological Seminary, Gresham Machen, he wrote, "It it should be observed." That if religion be made independent of history, there is no such thing as a gospel. For gospel means good news, tidings, information about something that has happened. A gospel independent of history is a contradiction in terms. It must certainly be admitted then that Christianity does depend upon something that happened. Our religion must be abandoned altogether, unless at a definitive point in history Jesus died as a propitiation for the sins of men. Christianity is certainly dependent upon history. The Christian faith is affirmed and strengthened by the history of real people, places, and events, and that is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, related to this point, the historicity of the gospel is number two: is the sovereignty of the gospel. The sovereignty of the gospel. By sovereignty, I mean the gospel is the definite and infallible plan of the sovereign God. Right? This point barely needs any explanation. The gospel is not a coincidence or accident. Right, the reason why I can say there are people trickling into the sanctuary at North Shore Baptist Church at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. every Sunday was because that is the plan you made as a church together. Right, the reason why I can say I, I I'm coming to North Shore on September 10th, 2023, is because that's the plan Ed made, which I agree to. So that's that's the plan. In the same way, the reason why Jesus can tell his disciples, "Listen, I am going to Jerusalem soon, and this is going to be the last time. I will be arrested, suffer, and then die. But take heart, I will rise again." The reason why he can say all these things so confidently was because that has always been the plan. Jesus knew what he came into the world. To do, Jesus knew what the plan was for his life. Jesus followed that plan, accelerated that plan, and fulfilled that plan. And whose plan is it? Well, Acts two twenty three. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And again, Acts four twenty seven. The disciples prayed. For truly, in this city in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take to take place. Right? The gospel is God's eternal plan, sovereign decree, an immutable. Will and that is why Jesus can say in Luke twenty two twenty two at the institution of the Lord's Supper, for the Son of Man goes as it has been 
determined. It has been determined. The gospel is determined by the meticulous sovereignty and brought about by the irresistible providence of God. And number three is the simplicity of the gospel. The simplicity of the gospel. What is the gospel? You would imagine the gospel, that's something that claims to be able to, to, to rescue the souls of men from sin and death would be very complicated and incomprehensible. But verse 21, look at verse 21. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. It's as simple as that. There is no need for eloquence. There is no twist or turn of deep philosophical reasoning There is no need for solving complex mathematical systems. There is no need to employ powerful computational tools. The gospel of Jesus Christ is simply this. Jesus, the Son of God, lived as a man in righteousness, suffered uh, the shame of death on the cross to atone for our sins, to turn away the wrath of God against sinners, And then he rose from the dead to bring eternal life to everyone who repents and believes in him. I used to give presentations to uh, about my research in my department. It takes an hour to do it. After much simplification and abridgment, and then people leave the presentation confused. When I go out to share the gospel with our neighbors, lost and perishing neighbors in Woodside, it takes me two minutes to explain it, sometimes five if they have questions. So the gospel is incredibly simple. Now, Paul wrote in Romans 10, verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your hearts who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will, who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. And that is the word of faith we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth and be, uh, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the gospel. Simple yet profound unassuming but mighty. Paul wrote again, 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Why, why is it folly to the Gentiles? Well, because the Gentiles have been seeking the way of salvation and the solution to the sin and death problem for a long, long time, but they found none. Not even close. But all of a sudden, this Jesus came and claimed that his life, death, and resurrection completely solved the sin problem and destroyed the power of death. How can such a complicated, complex, and impossible problem of sin have such an elegant and simple solution? And it cannot be. That is foolishness. But that's God's mercy. No one gets an edge by being more intelligent, more educated, more wealthy, or more powerful. The field is even, and no one is disqualified because he cannot mentally understand the gospel. Very, very few people are. God does not condemn the masses of the world by giving them a relativity theory-like gospel that very few people can understand, so that people are not very smart, people that are not very bright, People that are not very discerning, they can also have eternal life through faith in the only Savior, Jesus Christ. And lastly, number four, that is the necessity of the gospel. The necessity of the gospel. Verse 21. Look at verse 21 again. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer. The word must, it means necessary, fitting. It means inevitable, right? It is necessary. It is fitting. It is inevitable for Jesus to suffer and die 
arise again. Every part, every action here is necessary. Puritan Thomas Goodwin, he wrote a book. It's called Christ Set Forth. And the point of the book is very simple. It's just that every single thing Jesus did was for our salvation. He wrote this. What abundant provision God has laid up in Christ for all sorts of believers to live upon. Everything in Christ, whatsoever he was or whatsoever he did, with a joint voice speaking justification unto us. So translate that into modern English. The gospel is like a jigsaw puzzle. Taking away any piece from it, that will render the whole puzzle lacking and incomplete. And so let's, let's consider a little bit more the three things Jesus mentioned here. His suffering in the hands of the Jewish elites, his death on the cross, and his resurrection on the third day. Three things. His suffering and his death and his resurrection. Why are they necessary? Well, because of the limited amount of time we have this morning, for each of the three things, I'll focus on the main reason of their necessity. If I were to explain everything there is about these three things, we'll be here forever. So we'll focus on the main reasons. So first, number one, Jesus' suffering and humiliation was necessary. Jesus' suffering and humiliation was necessary. Have you ever paused I wondered why Jesus had to be mocked, spit upon, and scourged. But why didn't they just turn him over to the Romans and the Romans would just nail him to the cross and just crucify him directly? Why the party of mockery? Why, why the scourging? Why the crown of thorn? Jesus says in verse 21, it, it is necessary. It is fitting. It is inevitable that he should suffer and be tortured this way. How so? Have you, have you thought about it before? I thought about it, and I think there are many reasons, but I'll limit to two. First of all, reason number one, Jesus must suffer because the Old Testament scripture must be fulfilled. Jesus intentionally did a lot of things in his ministry for the specific purpose of fulfilling Old Testament scriptures. And Matthew seems to pick up on this in his gospel. If you read his account of Jesus being betrayed and tortured, there are lots of references to the Old Testament. And if you read the Old Testament carefully, you'll find the suffering of the Messiah is not merely his death, but also his suffering in the hands of man. For example, Psalm 22, verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their, their heads. Not death only, but suffering. Now, Psalm 38, verse 7, For my sighs are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. And not death, but suffering, prob- probably from the flogging. Psalm 69, verse 11. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. Not death only, but also mockery. Jesus needs to suffer the shame to fulfill the, the Old Testament. Now also, Jesus must suffer shame because he must despise that shame to bring honor to his people. Now you see, for Jesus to be our substitutionary atoning sacrifice, he must endure every consequence of sin on our behalf. But the consequence of sin is not just death, it is also shame. Right? When Adam sinned, you remember he ran away, he hid himself. Why? Because he was ashamed. Right? By Adam's one sin, he brought the shame of dishonor upon all mankind. And therefore, Jesus, as the second Adam, must also suffer not just death, but also shame. Because Adam hid in his shame, Jesus must publicly endure that shame. To save us from the shameful sin and the shame of, of sin, Christ must also suffer the shame we deserve so that we may glory in him. Jesus, it is necessary. Jesus must suffer 
shame and, 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 and torture at the hands of Jewish elites. Now, why is it necessary for Jesus to die? Well, this needs a little explanation. Jesus must die because this is the only way for the sins of God's people to be atoned for perfectly and completely. The wages of sin is death. Either you pay for the price of death yourself, or Jesus steps in and bears that sin on the cross for you. Jesus died so that we do not need to die for our sins forever. Jesus takes away the shame through suffering. Jesus removes the consequence and the guilt of sin and death through his his cross. Now, why is it necessary for Jesus to rise again? For many reasons, but the main reason is to secure and lead us to eternal life, joy, and blessing. Jesus said he alone is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus proves he is speaking the truth by rising from the dead himself. Jesus is the first fruit of resurrection, so that at the appointed time, there will be a harvest of resurrection, where we ourselves, who have put trust in him, will be raised immortal and imperishable to everlasting life and bliss in and through him. So it is necessary, it is fitting, it is inevitable that Jesus should live, suffer, die, and rise again. Nothing can be missed here. Uh, the gospel is inevitable. The gospel is unavoidable if you want to avoid death and misery for eternity. Three points of application. Application number one, the gospel is inevitable, so we must preach and teach it. The gospel is inevitable, so we must teach and preach it. Last year, I preached a sermon at Woodside on church membership. It was an expositional sermon with appropriate applications. I felt pretty good about the sermon, and that's when you know the Lord is about to humble you. After the sermon, I asked my then-girlfriend, now-wife, what she thinks. She said, that was good, but you didn't preach the gospel. He who finds a wife finds a good thing, right? I was... I was a little surprised and taken aback. And then I remembered what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 16. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I am not better than Paul. I should preach the gospel. You are not better than Paul, so you should preach the gospel. We should teach and preach the gospel to our children. We should teach and preach the gospel to unbelievers. We should teach and preach it to one another. We should teach and preach the gospel to ourselves. The gospel is for the church. The gospel is for believers. The gospel is for the world. The gospel is also for unbelievers. The gospel is inevitable, brothers. Let's teach and preach it always. Application number two, the gospel is inevitable, so we must focus on it. The gospel is inevitable, so we must focus on it. The gospel is of first importance. So the gospel must dictate every ministry of the church as its motivation and feel. Now, we minister because we have been saved through that gospel, and we minister so that more people, more men will be saved through the gospel, or saved men can mature in the gospel. If there is ever a ministry in the church, you just listed a bunch of ministries. We're very, uh, we're very jealous of all the ministries you have here. If there's ever a ministry in the church where the gospel is not necessary, or totally avoidable, or auxiliary, then we should think a little bit more carefully how to orient that ministry to the gospel. We must not let the controversies of the present time, the trend of the culture, the wisdom of the world, or the agenda of the powerful dictate the ministries, the missions, and methodology of the church. The gospel is inevitable. Everything else must come sec- become secondary or rejected 
completely. The gospel is of first importance, brother. So let's focus on it always in every ministry here at North Shore Baptist Church. Application number three. The gospel is inevitable, so we must love and treasure it. The gospel is inevitable, so we must love and treasure it. You have heard the gospel many times. I don't think I said anything new you hadn't known already before. You have heard this gospel many times. What is your marginal utility of hearing it one more time? You have believed Jesus. Do you want to hear him more and more? You have staked your life and eternity upon the gospel. Do you still go back to that same old story of the gospel and find Jesus Christ set forth anew, the Son of God, exalted afresh, as glorious, as reviving to your soul as ever? My wedding day was, was a day I will never forget. I married a beautiful bride. I saw many friends. I ate a big steak. But the highlight of my wedding day is when Ed preached the gospel. I go to church every Sunday. I fellowship with the saints. I play with kids. I have the joy to, to meet visitors. But the highlight of every Sunday is when the gospel is preached. Nothing, nothing rivals the gospel. The godly Robert Murray McShane, he wrote this. Often the doctrine of Christ, for me, appears common, well-known, having nothing new in it. And I am tempted to pass it by and go to some, some scripture more taking and captivating. This is the devil again, a red-hot lie. Christ for us is ever new ever glorious, unsearchable riches of Christ, an infinite object, and the only one for a guilty soul. The gospel is inevitable, brothers, so love and treasure it always. Return to it. Meditate upon it. Point number two, the refutation. The refutation. Jesus talked about his imminent suffering, death, and resurrection, but apparently not everyone is very happy about this shocking revelation and development. Verse 22. Look at verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Yeah, you're right. you, you read that correctly. Peter rebuked Jesus. Peter was so riled up uh, that he rebuked Jesus. Verse 22. Far be it. Uh, from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So just to make this situation abundantly clear to you, this is what's happening. Jesus just affirmed that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And now he taught about his impending suffering and death. We obviously have no problem with Jesus teaching here, but all this Sound is so outrageous and so wrong from the disciples' perspective at that time that Peter, a, a disciple, a servant, an inferior, would go and prove Jesus wrong. That's to say, from this episode, I want you to get this. This is important. That's to say, the example of Peter is telling us this. There are things Jesus says or teaches that appear very wrong and unimaginable to us and our moral palate, that we would rather tell him that he is wrong and he should never have said those things. Now, what are things men read in the scriptures or doctrines we uphold as Christians that cause such a reaction from nominal believers? Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you, or this shall never proceed, uh, have proceeded from your mouth, or this shall never be the practice of the Christian church. Let me just give you some examples. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He is the only way to eternal life. Far be it that you shall teach such a thing, Jesus. Jesus says there is a hell where unrepentant sinners will perish die, and suffer eternally. Well, far be it from you, Lord, that you shall teach such a barbaric thing, Jesus. Jesus says he secured the forgiveness of sin through his death for his elect and his elect only. 
Far from it that you do not die for everyone equally, Jesus. The Bible says God chose sinners before the foundation of the earth, not based on anything inherent in them, but only by His good will and pleasure. Far from it that you should do such an unfair and cruel thing, Jesus. Shall I go on? Paul said, "I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man, especially as officers of the church." Paul also said, "Wives, submit to your husbands." Far be it from you that you shall agree with such a hateful and misogynistic statement, Jesus. The Bible commands all professing Christians to be members of a local church, if providence so permits. Far be it from you that you shall turn your church into an exclusive and elitist social club, Jesus. The Bible teaches church members who live in open sin should be subject to church discipline and even excommunication. Far be it from you, Jesus, that you should be so unloving. Bible says only baptized members of a gospel-preaching local church can partake the Lord's Supper. Far be it from you that you do not welcome everyone to come, Jesus. The Bible says church members have the obligation and responsibility to give to the church and support the ministries of the word financially, accordingly as God has prospered them. Far be it that you, Jesus, should sound like a lover of money. Far be it from you, Lord Jesus, that you should command such a thing. Far be it that you should sound misogynistic, morbid, cruel, bigoted, homophobic, transphobic, narcissistic, and irritable. This can never be said by you and about you, but these things are actually in the Bible. If you look closer, so what do some people or churches do? They often they begin to soften. And dilute these doctrines, and then they make excuses for these doctrines. Yeah, you can be a gay Christian. That's not an oxymoron. Yeah, women can be elders because Paul was just speaking to the Ephesian church back then, specific to that culture and era. But it's obsolete now. Yeah, you can believe in another god as long as you are a pious believer of that god. Then you will go to heaven. Ah,、uh, yeah, God will never let sinners burn in hell forever. If this Christianity Christianity thing really isn't for you, then you would just be annihilated. You will not suffer forever. You would just cease to exist. And then the so-called churches let these doctrines or practices phase out slowly, and eventually simply outright deny them altogether. And like Peter, we sometimes think we know better than Jesus. And we need to help Jesus out by proving him wrong and obsolete, and coming up with something wiser and more palatable. Does Jesus need our help? Verse twenty-three. Get behind me, Satan! You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. There are three parts. In Jesus' rebuke, and let me conclude by considering each part one by one. First of all, Jesus identifies the problem. Verse twenty-three: Get behind me, Satan! The devil is the problem. The devil is a steady opposition toward God, Christ, and His kingdom. Jesus has already encountered and singled him out several times in Matthew's gospel so far. Matthew four, you remember, Jesus was in the wilderness fasting. Verse two, and the tempter came, and the devil came. Matthew thirteen, the parable of the sower. The path symbolizes anyone who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Matthew thirteen, the the parable of the weeds. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while the man was sleeping. Uh, his enemy came and sowed weed among the wheat and went away. So the problem here is Peter's folly and slowness. But a deeper spiritual problem is a steady opposition from the devil toward Jesus and his inevitable rule and victory. Now, when Jesus says, "Get behind me, Satan," 
He's not saying Peter is literally the devil, where devil is personified as Peter, where Peter was possessed by the devil, where demons, as he was rebuking Jesus. I think what Jesus meant here by calling Peter Satan is that Peter's logic, his thoughts, and his words are not of God, but of devil. Not God-like or Christ-like, but the devil-like. The devil lies, John 8, 44. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And Peter did not speak the truth to Jesus, nor did he understand the truth. The devil tempts and leads men into sin. And Mark 1.13, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And now Peter again presents a temptation to Christ, trying to prevent Jesus from dying on the cross for sin by showing him just how shocking and unacceptable it is from, uh, for him to suffer. The devil disguises himself, and he always appears to make sense. Satan is a very effective tempter, a liar, precisely because he makes sense. Peter's rebuke here also seems to make sense. How can the Lord who healed the sick and raised the dead be subject to such suffering? How can the Son of God just let men attack, assault, and then kill him? It makes a lot of sense that he doesn't suffer and die, because he should not suffer and die. Peter was not the devil, nor was he possessed or personified by the devil, but Peter was devilish in his reasoning, in his words, and in his attitudes. The devil and his usual tactics are the problem. Now, secondly, Jesus not only identifies the problem, he also identifies the goal. Verse 23, look at verse 23. You are a hindrance to me. Whereas the Greek literally says, you are a stumbling block to me. The goal of the devil is to, is to hinder Jesus, to try to trip him over, and thus hinder the work of salvation and the furtherance of God's kingdom, and thus bring every man to eternal condemnation with him. Well, the same thing can be said of men today. They think they're doing God a favor. They think by diluting and denying certain doctrines and practices that are embarrassing or unpalatable to us, practices and doctrines to which they say, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. They think by diluting and denying and casting aside such doctrines and practices, they can be more inclusive, more loving, more welcoming. They can make the gospel more attractive and more appealing to believers. They can make the church a more comfortable and less confrontational place where we are more comfortable with our sins and our egos and less confronted with the holy God and our sinfulness. And they, they think surely they're going to induce more growth of God's kingdom this way. Surely God is pleased with us. I mean, his plan is pretty good. But we can just tweak a few things to adapt to our culture, our time, our social context. Then it will be an explosive success. We are helping God. And then Jesus says, you are a hindrance to me. Calvin wrote in his commentary, here we learn what estimation in the sight of God belongs to what are called good intentions. So deeply is pride rooted in the hearts of men that they think wrong is done them and complain if God doesn't comply with everything that they consider to be right. But while they applaud themselves in this daring manner, God not only rejects what they believe to be worthy of the highest praise, but even pronounces a severe censure on his folly and wickedness. The so-called well-intentioned people in the church are hindrances to Jesus because the king of the kingdom knows how his kingdom will grow and expand. And he has told all his followers to obey that plan. That is, through the uncompromised, unashamed, unadulterated preaching of the gospel and obedience thereunto, through the building of healthy local churches based on biblical ecclesiological practices, church membership, church leadership, the ordinances, a serious and active discipleship, 
anything else, any human agenda, or any human modification will prove counterproductive or even destructive. Anything else is a hindrance to Jesus apart from the gospel. Now, finally, Jesus identified the problem, the goal, and now Jesus also identified the motive. Why did Peter step in to dissuade Jesus from the gospel? Why do people want to implement their agenda and desire over Jesus? Verse 23. Look at verse 23. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That is a diagnosis from the heavenly physician, because Peter did not think about the things of God, but he was preoccupied with the things of man. Peter was probably thinking about himself. If Jesus should suffer and die, what would he do? He had left everything to follow Jesus. Well, worse yet, he will probably be also arrested and suffer at the hands of the Jewish elites. On top of all this, he was really hoping for, uh, for climbing the socioeconomic ladder quickly. If Jesus suffered and died, then his dream of honor and glory would also shatter. Peter was probably also thinking about his fellow disciples. The disciples also left everything to follow Jesus. Andrew, James, and John left a very profitable fishing business. Do they also have to go back now? Poor Matthew, he left basically the Wall Street of Israel. And what is he going to do now? And poor Philip, he was really enthusiastic about Jesus the Messiah. And now he's going to be very disappointed. Matthew 19, 27. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? We have put all our eggs in your basket, Jesus. We have invested our life savings in your mutual fund, Jesus. What are we going to get if you suffer and die? Peter was also probably thinking about Israel. I don't want you to die, Lord, because we need to restore glory and kingdom and power back to Israel. And finally, Peter was probably thinking about Jesus too. Who would want a good friend, a teacher, and a master figure to die? And now let's, let's think back to ourselves. I'm shifting from third person to first person now because I think some of this can apply to ourselves or be tempting to ourselves as well. What are we really saying well, what is it that undergirds all this mixture of interests and desires to push aside certain doctrines and practices? It's the things of man. It is the things of man that we're too obsessed with and worry about. We do not want to offend women in the, in the face of feminism and egalitarianism. We do not want to sound hateful in this cultural context of expressive individualism. We want people to feel loved and included just as they are, without any repentance or commitment or determination to change. We don't want anyone to experience emotional distress or damage because of our words. We do not want to utter hate speech. We are not sure if people are open or receptive of a God who, want, uh, who is so exclusive and restrictive. So you see, none of these desires are oriented or centered upon God. We're too concerned about man and the things of man, but mindful of God and the things of God, very little. We as God's creature are called to sacrifice ourselves and desires for the Lord and his glory. But now we sacrifice God and his glory for our little concerns for men. Now when we challenge, doubt, and deny the scriptural truth, we're thinking about man their reception or perception of us, our place among them, their attitude toward us, and our favor before them. What will they think about or do to us? Jesus didn't care about it, nor should we, his followers. The logic really should be this. God is holy and far more transcendent than men. Therefore, God is true and we will obey him. No matter what man says, what man dislikes, what man vehemently opposes. Three quick applications and we'll be done. Application one. For believers here, Jesus is always right. So reason with scriptural logic. We like to form judgments and voice our opinions on social issues, political matters, or theological debates. There's an ever-present temptation to use human reasoning that makes sense to ourselves 
and be very confident and stubborn about it. All right, uh, and so, um, so next time, because the Bible is always true, Jesus' teaching is always right. Then next time, when you try to form an opinion about something, anything, ask yourself, whose logic are you relying on? Your own? We're using Jesus' words. We have the minds of Christ, and He is always right. So reason with the scriptural logic. Application two for believers again: Jesus is always right. So counsel with the scriptural wisdom. Have you ever sat down with someone and given counsel? You've talked and talked, and you really felt like you are giving some good and solid advice. Man, I'm on a roll today. And suddenly you realized none of what you said comes from the Bible. Have you? I have. So, brothers, when you help and encourage one another, quote the Bible, reference the Bible, rehearse the Bible, explain the Bible, because Jesus' words, which are all the words of the Bible, are going to be infinitely better and wiser than the best thing we can come up with ourselves. And application three, last one for unbelievers here: Jesus is always right. So repent and trust in Him, friends. I cannot conclude. The sermon without addressing you who are apart from Jesus. Jesus is right when he said, "You are a sinner, and should you continue in your rebellion against God, a rejection of Christ, you will die eternally in hell." But Jesus is also right when he said he came to save sinners by laying down his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is right again when he said he is the resurrection. And life. Whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus is right when he said, "Repent, for the kingdom of God is near." Jesus is right, friends. So repent and trust in him. The gospel is of first importance, brethren. So love this gospel, proclaim this gospel, and defend this gospel. Let's pray. Lord, what a rich treasure you have freely lavished upon us in Jesus Christ, and that. Is the gospel the Son of God taking on flesh as a man to live in righteousness, to die for our sins, to turn away your wrath, and to rise to everlasting life? And He is now seated at your right hand. I pray that every soul present here this morning who has heard and learned from your word will be transformed in the heart to live lives of godliness, of repentance, knowing that you are always right and will follow you. Wherever we go, we pray. Amen.